Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 63 of The Five By, your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews. In today's episode, Mason rolls and writes in Quinto. Meepo Lady builds steampunk machines in Steamworks. I devise clues for wonderfully weird illustrations in Dixit. And Ruel battles for control of provinces in Sun Tzu. But first, Mike gets busy carbo-loading in Go Nuts for Donuts. About five years ago, I broke down and got the quintessential drafting game, Sushi Go, and my family and I fell hard for it. It's light. It's quick. The art is adorable. And even my oldest, who was eight at the time, but still fairly new to gaming, got it and loved it. So fast forward to 2017, and I started hearing my friends, particularly Becky and Kelly from Board Games in Bed, talking about a similar drafting game, Go Nuts for Donuts. Similar theme, just donuts instead of sushi. Similarly cute art, also from GameRite, though not in an obnoxious tin box. And while I thought, why mess with a good thing, right? I mean, it's all well and good for others who don't own Sushi Go. But as the saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And besides, we'd recently just upgraded to Sushi Go Party. So I put the game out of my mind. That is, until my family, who don't listen to reviews and didn't know what it was, got Go Nuts for Donuts for me for Christmas. And well, now that I own it, I figure I needed to see what it was about. In Go Nuts for Donuts, you're trying to collect the best donuts. I assume for eating. Like in Sushi Go, this is accomplished via card drafting. Unlike Sushi Go, this is not an everyone chooses a card and passes their hand type draft. It's more similar to a Rochester style draft, except everyone is picking in secret and reveals simultaneously. You have a by row of the number of players plus one cards. The players then secretly choose which one they want, and everyone reveals at the same time. Except, here's the problem. Donuts are immutable. They can't be split. That's just physics. So if more than one person picked the same donut, well, then you, my friend, are out of luck. That card now goes in the discard pile, and you get nothing. I said good day, sir. And anyone else who was lucky enough not to pick the same card as someone else gets to take that donut they chose and add it to their tableau. And this is where we get a little different from basic Sushi Go. Because while the donuts look sweet, they all aren't. Designer Zachary Eagle put some teeth into this game. Some give you negative points but let you steal cards from other players. Some let you give your negative points cards to those other players after you've used their abilities. Some give you one-time special abilities to take the card you want from the discard, or to pick from the top of the deck. They're kind of all over. But the point is, you want donuts to get points. Some of a lot of kinds, or a lot of a few kinds. It just kind of depends on what donuts you get early to drive what strategy you want to follow. And when the deck runs out, the game is over. Tally up your points, and the person with the most points wins. So, aside from the card's abilities and point distributions, the main difference with Go Nuts for Donuts is the draft. So let's talk about that for a minute. Because I hate the draft. So, for the draft, you put out a number of cards per player, plus one with each card under a number. The players all have a hand of cards with matching numbers that they use to secretly select which donut they want. It's pretty slick and easy to set up. And as previously covered, after a simultaneous reveal, if you chose a donut that no one else did, then great! You get that donut and put it in your tableau and use the action on it if it has one. Otherwise, that donut gets discarded and you get nothing. Setting aside the theme, which, uh, maybe your kid's squabbling over the same donut and there's only one left and so your parents throw it away? I don't know. That you can end the round with nothing is so frustrating to me. My wife and I frequently stare at each other annoyed because that's who I most frequently clash with when selecting donuts. 
So many exasperated looks. And while yes, there are donut cards that give you bonuses for having only a few cards, you're still likely going to clash trying to get them. Like, I get it. That conflict is the point of the game. It wouldn't be this game without it. It's trying to encourage you to do something unexpected. But oftentimes for us, it ends up in a loop of, why did you pick that card? You needed the other card to get the points for the set. Yes, I know, but I also knew that you knew that, and you needed one too, so I figured I'd let you get this one and try and go for another. So the good news is that with the number of cards plus one, this means that in a two-player game, you have a 67% chance of picking a card by yourself. That's pretty nice. But in a five-player game, there is only a 9% chance that everyone will pick a unique card. And while that's not so great. And while I'm sure there are many Misery Farm fans out there that are like, that pain is the whole point. In my family, we try to mitigate it a little by adding an extra card choice. It helps out some, but not a ton, just knocking that 9% up to 15%. Still, I don't mean to sound down on the game. I'm truly not. We're just not big on heavy conflict games. More than one of us, when forced to give up a card to another player, will give them the card that helps them the most. I just want people to know what they're getting when they get gonads for donuts. Which means my summary is, with minor modification for us, we really like gonads for donuts. Claire Donaldson's art is adorable, though with the perfect amount of menace for some of the meaner cards. The card action and point scoring is unique and a fun twist compared to the more static scoring in Base Sushi Go. We overall enjoy playing it, and I'm really glad we have it. I just don't find that it scales well for us. But that's workable and well worth experimenting with to enjoy the rest of the game. I could totally see a Sushi Go Party style expansion for Go Nuts for Donuts if Game Right or Zachary Eagle decided to go with it. So that's Go Nuts for Donuts, and a big thanks to Matt and Michael on Twitter for helping with the stats for this episode. And as always, if you want to discuss Go Nuts for Donuts further, or want to know why a Queen Amon is truly the greatest breakfast pastry, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Mike Risley. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Quinto. Hobby gaming sometimes seems like an endless miasma of, which edition is this? And, no, the French version has different rules. And, yeah, but that's actually a reworked version of a Kinesia card game from 97, but with a different bidding system. There are lots of games with similar titles, games that are sequels or reissues with indistinct titles, games with the exact same titles that have nothing to do with each other, games with the same titles save for the newer game's edition of an exclamation mark, and games with purposefully unique spellings of titles in a publisher's attempt to disambiguate and distinguish, which mostly results in more confusion and makes them difficult to Google. Quinto, Q-W-I-N-T-O, published by Nuremberger Spielkarten Verlag in 2015, is a tight little roll-and-write game, not to be confused with any of the three other games called Quinto, Q-U-I-N-T-O. One of those is forgettable and probably junk, one is a forgotten 90s Sid Saxon card game with publisher butchered rules, and one is the magnificent 1964 3M bookshelf title that's basically just math scrabble. Highly recommend that one, uh, one of my favorite 3M games. Roll and write games, and I prefer the term pencil games, have hotted up in the last three years to the degree that I'm largely bored by the announcement of new ones, especially very complex ones. I think that speaks to a larger personal problem I have. The more someone tells me I should like something, the more I want to hate it. Probably correlated to my low-level oppositional defiance, but, you know, who knows. I do still love a clean and simple pencil game that gives me choices, but doesn't ask me to remember a complex rule set or scoring system. Quicks, available pretty much everywhere, is a great example of this kind of direct and easily teachable pencil game. Quinto borrows some ideas from Quicks, they are both from the same publisher, but for us Quinto does it better, so let's get into why. Quinto is three dice and a piece of paper. 
You're rolling the dice and choosing to put the summed rolls in one of three rows, red, yellow, or blue. If you roll the red and blue dice together, you can put the sum in a spot on the red or blue lines. If you roll all three, you can put the sum on any lines. Numbers have to run ascending left to right, and the game is over when you fill two lines. You won't. Or crap out by not being able to place four of your rolls. This is how the game is going to end. There's not a lot of emergence in Quinto, and for once I think that's actually a good thing. Everyone has the same information and most of the same opportunities. On your turn, you must write down the sum of your rolls. On everyone else's turn, you have the choice to write down their roll. Now, in a roundabout way, especially for a dice game, it's almost perfect information. You're free to look at other people's score sheets, though we choose not to, and all players have access to every roll, provided they've made good choices and have space available on their sheets. I do think there's a slight learning curve to Quinto. You have to choose every turn which combination of dice to roll, and those early rolls are often critical in setting up and spacing out your scoring opportunities. At the end of the game, you get points for each number you filled in, and extra points if you filled the line completely. You also score for key columns completed in addition to the rows. There are a couple of different paths to points in Quinto, and players who excel at order and planning should do fairly well. I like that Quinto is a dice rolling game that's not particularly exciting. Now, it's fun and challenging and easy to pick up and play, but it doesn't really require a ton of emotional energy. It's often our go-to game when we just can't think of anything else to play. Because it's quick and very rules-light and still actively engages your mind, we found it to be a great stress reliever. In Quinto, Bernard Locke and Uwe Rapp have designed a game that seems so simple that it feels like it's not designed, which for me is usually a sign of a good game. I've played a lot, and I mean a lot, of amateur-designed pencil games, and far too often they're filled with extensive dice mitigation options. Quinto is short enough that I don't want reroll or plus-one options to use. I've not kept many of the more complex pencil games we've tried, partially because they often overstay their welcome, have too many extra components, or just pack so much into a small sheet that it ruins everything I like about the genre. I really thought I wanted medium-weight Euro-style pencil games, but apparently I was wrong. I'm sure other people love them, but they've all just left me largely indifferent. Quinto shines in a space that lets me use my higher functions for choice and light strategy instead of just trying to remember a bunch of rules. Quinto has recently become available in the US from Pandasaurus, and is widely sold for between $10 and $15. It comes in a little box, and the sheets aren't very large, so we mostly play with laminated copies of the custom-made score sheets posted on BoardGameGeek. You could, of course, just laminate the sheets that come in it, but I prefer printing on cardstock before laminating, as it tends to wrinkle less and hold up a little longer. So, who should play Quinto? People who like Quicks. People who like Sudoku, which I suppose are both just people who like putting numbers in order. And people who like casual games to share with coworkers in the break room, family at the holidays, and strangers in places that Twilight Imperium or Age of Steam just won't fit. I give Quinto, 3 out of 3 primary colored dice that might be a slight problem in low light for our color vision impaired listeners that I forgot to mention until just now, but that I think are probably okay in most normal lighting situations. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. I recently played one of my favorite underrated games, Steamworks, published in 2015 by Tasty Minstrel Games. This is one game a lot of people don't often talk about. And when I first received the game at a board game White Elephant a few years ago, I originally dismissed the game as well. The cover art features whimsy steampunk characters, and it doesn't look like that heavy of a game but it's a fantastic worker placement that's a little bit on the heavier side, with lots of replayability. Just don't play it with five people. At five, the game can be grueling. And if you like punishment, then play at five. I have. In Steamworks, players are collecting energy sources and components in order to build devices that will net them victory points. Players can also use opponents' devices, but in doing so, the device owner will be getting a victory point. Players start with their character board, $5, two meeple mechanics, 
and starting components and or energy sources. The cool thing about this game is that there are a lot of characters to choose from, all with different abilities and starting tiles. It's also super cool that the artwork features diverse people. Players can also decide to play on the A side, which gives everyone the same abilities. There's also a central board. In each round, tiles are laid out on a conveyor belt corresponding to the ages that have been unlocked. As more ages are unlocked, which I'll explain later, each player gets another mechanic, maxing out at 4 in the last stage of the game. On your turn, you deploy your mechanic. The first mechanic is free, and future mechanics have a cost to deploy, each one getting more expensive. If you can't afford to deploy your mechanic, or choose not to, you can pass and receive the income instead that's written below the mechanic's spot. Players take their turns deploying their mechanics until everybody is out of people, and then the round ends. To build a device, it needs to have at least one power source on one component, and they have to match, meaning if a tile only takes steam power, then it has to be built with the steam source. Tiles will also activate differently based on what power source you give it. This completed device is now yours in front of you. On your turn, if you activate your device or an opponent's, you place your mechanic on a power source. All the components connected to that source are activated, triggering really cool effects. This is where the game gets really interesting and complex in the best possible way. People can create all sorts of devices and combinations. If you plan ahead, you can create a powerful device that'll make everyone say whoa and want to use your device. Case in point, my friend created this device with Ampli Condenser and two distillers, all powered by one source, electrical. When you power up this device, you can choose which tiles will activate first. Naturally, you'll want the Ampli Condenser to go first, giving you three source tiles. You then turn a source tile to five coins, twice because there were two distillers. This machine was used a lot by all of us, netting my friend many victory points. It was just too good to pass up. I love being able to get creative with building these devices. But it's also difficult to keep track of all the machines that have been created, which is why I don't recommend playing this at 5p. People are constantly asking you what your device does, and as the game progresses and you get more meeple mechanics, the game can really grind to a halt, especially if your group has strong AP. I found that 3p is a sweet spot for Steamworks, and maybe 4 if your gaming group is pretty quick. When you use somebody else's device, he or she gets a clock from the center of the board. Clocks are worth one victory point each. As clocks get used up on the board, they unlock each age in the game, putting more tiles into play, and you also eventually get your third and fourth meeple mechanic. The game ends when all the clocks have been distributed, or when there aren't enough age 3 tiles to fill up the conveyor belt. You then count up your victory points, clocks, and VPs from the devices you've built, and the person with the most VPs wins the game. If there's a tie, cash is a tiebreaker. The game has some elements of Lahav and Keyflower, where you're using other people's buildings. The key is to build compelling devices that your opponents would want to use, a lot, but then you also might get shut out of your cool machine. My only gripe about this game is that the rulebook isn't well written, and there's even an entire tile that isn't fully explained. Lastly, the game takes up a lot of space, so when people start building their devices, make sure you have lots of table space. And that's Steamworks! This is Meeple Lady for the Fine Buy. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening! Bye! Hi everyone, it's Laura. 
Every once in a while, I pull an old game off the shelf, something I haven't played or even thought of in a while. It happened a few weeks ago when I had some people over for a marathon game day. We were about 10 hours in and probably should have just called it a night. But like many before us in that same situation, we decided to play one more game. Something that would be manageable for five players who were up well past their bedtimes. We ended up picking Dixit, and as we started playing it, I was like, oh yeah, this is why I still have this game. Dixit is a three to six player family weight game designed by Jean-Louis Rubira and published by Libalud in 2008. The most striking thing about this game is the deck of cards illustrated by Marie Cadois, which are full of strange and dreamlike images. You start each turn with six of these cards, and if you're the active player, you come up with a clue for one of your cards before placing it face down. That clue can be a sound, word, phrase, song, pretty much whatever you want. The other players pick a card from their hand that best matches that clue, and then, when all cards are shuffled and randomly laid out, they'll vote on which card they think is yours. Points are awarded, merriment is had, and then the role of active player passes to your left. What made Dixit such a good choice for a late-night game is that most of the gameplay is simultaneous, so you're not sitting there trying to keep your eyes open while minute after agonizing minute ticks away. I mean, I guess that could happen if one of the players had analysis paralysis, but I've never seen that in Dixit. People take about 10 seconds or so to pick a card in their hand, and then another 10 or 20 seconds to vote. After the reveal, which is always a good time, you score three points if you correctly guess the active player's card. Plus, you get another bonus point for each person who voted for your card. Every once in a while, you'll manage a full sweep, getting everyone to vote for your card instead of the active players. And that's definitely a moi-ah-ah kind of moment. So being the active player is tough, and not only because you don't know what cards the other players have in their hands. It's also a balancing act, because when you're the active player, points are all or nothing. If you want those coveted three points, you have to think of a clue that isn't too obvious and isn't too obscure, because if no one guesses your card, zero points. Everyone guesses your card, zero points. I love this rule. Like, if I were in middle school, I would draw hearts around it, because it pushes you to dig deeper and come up with more interesting clues. You know the game, guess the really obvious answers to basic questions? No? That's because it doesn't exist, because no one wants to play that game. So what else makes Dixit so good? Well, the wonderfully weird artwork engages that right-brained creative center of your mind, and it also provides a window into other people's minds. You'll start to see who interprets the images on the cards more literally, who connects with them emotionally, and who's willing to get zero points that round because they just thought of a clue that will make everyone laugh. The real heart of the game is getting to know the people sitting at the table with you. It's about getting better at guessing their cards because you're better at knowing them. And when you're the active player, it's that sense of connection you feel with another player. That moment when you see the light bulb go on and you just know they've figured out your difficult or off-the-wall clue. Dixit has won a bunch of awards over the years, and that's because it's just fun. As I mentioned earlier, most of the action is simultaneous, and so it doesn't slow down with more players. In fact, I think Dixit is even better at higher player counts. You can buy a copy published by Asmodee for about 30 US dollars, and for that price point, I hope you get better component quality than I did in their 2016 edition. The components were serviceable, but cheap. Dixit is a game I can comfortably recommend to pretty much everyone. You can play it with kids, use it as an icebreaker at work, or bust it out with gamers in the wee hours of the night. If you already have other family weight games that involve giving clues about pictures, for example, Muse and Codenames Pictures comes to mind, then I'm not sure it would make much sense to add Dixit to your collection. But if you don't have one of those, this modern classic still holds up and could be the right game to fill that niche. And that's all I got.
I'm Laura Donovan Bannister, and you can find me on Twitter at Laura Wrote It. Hi, friends. Ruel Gaviola here, and it's time to travel back to ancient China to practice the art of war. Named after the legendary Chinese general, Sun Tzu is an area control game where you're leading your armies to take over the country. Every move counts in this war of attrition, since one ill-conceived action can result in your defeat. Originally published as Dynasties in 2005, the renamed Sun Tzu is a two-player game by Alan M. Newman, with art by Roland Barthelemy and Stéphane Ponsol, and published by Matago. In Sun Tzu, you and your opponent engage in a head-to-head war of wits to rule the land, battling via a hand of cards. You'll play a card face down on each of the five provinces. When one player has a higher card than the other, they place armies equal to the difference between the cards. The player with the most armies in a province controls it. Some cards, however, won't have a standard number on them. Instead, they'll have a special effect that allows you to manipulate army placement, both yours and your opponent's. You'll also have warlord cards that give you one-time abilities, and there may be events that change the outcomes of some battles. Scoring takes place after every three rounds, with each province's current point value given to the controlling player. A point tracker begins in the middle of the board, and if a player scores enough points to move it completely to their end, they win immediately. Otherwise, after nine rounds, the player with the point tracker on their side wins. I love two-player games. I can usually find another player willing to join me at the tabletop, and they're typically easier to learn and faster to play. Targi, Patchwork, Aquatiri, and Backgammon are some of my favorite two-player titles, and Sun Tzu ranks right up there. Sun Tzu streamlines a war game into five simple face-down cards, as each province is resolved through a flip of an opponent's cards. But this doesn't mean it's a simple game. There's plenty of tension from the start, as you try to guess what your opponent is going to do. Are they playing their one-time use cards in the highest scoring provinces, hoping to build an insurmountable lead? Or are they taking lower scoring provinces that score more points in later rounds in order to set themselves up for a late round victory? Each province is scored for the player who has control over it. Armies are placed according to the difference between the cards played, and after every three rounds, points are scored based on who has the most armies in each province. If neither of you has reached the final space on the victory tracker, then the game goes to the next round. After each round, special cards are discarded from the game, while your basic cards number 1 through 6 are returned to your hand. This is one of my favorite parts of Sun Tzu. You're constantly evaluating what cards to play and where to play them, while trying to remember what your opponent played in earlier rounds. Play too many special cards early, and that'll leave you with only your basic cards at the end. Or don't play enough special cards early, and you may be facing a quick defeat. While the main mechanisms in the game are hand management and area control, Sun Tzu lives up to his namesake by being a battle of wits. The obvious play every turn is to play your highest card on the province worth the most points. It's not that easy, though. You can play your special card worth 10 there, but if your opponent played their plus 1 card, then they have exactly one more than you and get to place one army there. And now one of your special cards is out of the game. Sun Tzu isn't a brain burner by any means, but you'll find yourself agonizing over playing cards in certain provinces. If you guess wrong, it could mean sending armies from one province to another that you didn't expect to. Or, depending on the cards you played, you could find yourself scrambling to play cards in other provinces you hadn't planned on. It's these tough decisions that I love in Sun Tzu. It's all about outthinking your opponent, and even when I've lost a game, it's always been a fun experience. The components in the game are outstanding. Based on the photos I've seen of the original dynasties, 
The production of Sun Tzu is an improvement in every way. The cards are beautifully illustrated, the map is clean and easy to read, and the miniatures are a delightful upgrade to gameplay. The flavor text on some of the cards from The Art of War is a nice touch, like never repeat a winning strategy, adapt it to new circumstances, and in war numbers mean nothing, never rest on military might alone. I also appreciate the variability in the game. Each province is given random point values during setup, then during the game the point values change every three rounds. You're also drawing cards every round, so even though you and your opponent start with the same cards, they'll show up or be played at different points during the game. Even with this variability, it's all about the ongoing metagame that really takes Sun Tzu to another level. The more you play an opponent, the more you can draw on your experiences with each other. In this sense, it takes me back to my poker playing days, when I could recall the ways certain opponents would play their hands through their betting patterns or body language. The game gets better the more you play it. I scored my copy of Sun Tzu from a math trade a few years ago, and it's still one of the best trades I've ever done. Copies aren't scarce by any means, but they're not cheap either. But if you're looking for a solid one-on-one -on -one game of warfare, Sun Tzu is definitely worth tracking down. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5x. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Thanks for listening to the 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.